Hello and welcome to Brain Food for General Counsel, where we seek out experts to help you navigate the big questions facing you, your teams and your organisation. My name is Matthew McGee and I'm a journalist here at Pinsent Masons. I think we all feel different to how we did over a year ago before the Covid pandemic struck. You might have suffered grief and loss, or economic uncertainty and anxiety, or stress from the isolation or burnout from caring responsibilities or homeschooling. And how you're coping will depend on all sorts of things, like your past experiences, your levels of resilience, and the economic and practical circumstances that dictate how much support you've had. We will each have had a unique response to one huge shared experience. And this all adds up to mass psychological turmoil that has probably not been experienced on this scale in much of the world in living memory. This creates an enormous challenge for organisations as well as for individuals and for the business leaders who will set the tone and the parameters of a return to -to face-to-face working. General counsel have a dual role here as leaders themselves of substantial teams but also as advisors to their organisations on the right way to approach a challenging situation. So we have some expert help on hand to talk about what the impact of all this has been and explain why you're feeling like you do, and to give some pointers on the kinds of approaches staff will be expecting, indeed demanding, as lockdowns ease and we find new ways of being together again. Dr Emma Kavanagh is a cognitive psychologist who for many years trained police and NATO forces on how to cope with high-stress, high-risk situations like hostage negotiations. She's an author now and her latest book, How to Be Broken, talks about some of the upsides of experiencing extreme circumstances. She'll tell us later about how we can all learn lessons from astronauts and people who spend winters in the Antarctic. Consultant forensic clinical psychologist Anne McKechnie specialises in the assessment and treatment of psychological reactions to trauma and advises organisations on the implementation of trauma-informed processes in the workplace. And Kate Dodd is an equality law specialist at Pinsent Masons, having spent some years working on our approaches to diversity and inclusion. The first thing for us all to understand and accept is that this is an extreme situation. It's no wonder we all feel a bit odd, as Anne McKechnie explains. How the the British Psychological Society, of whom I'm a member, and how my fellow clinicians have approached this has been very much in seeing it in terms of a global trauma. Now, what we mean by trauma is something which is unanticipated. You can't necessarily control the outcome. Um, It has potential um, fatal consequences, if not life-altering consequences. Um, So for that reason, it's been recognised as a trauma. And what's made it more traumatic is that, that we haven't been able to have access to our normal coping mechanisms. So our normal ways of coping, even when we came here, something I think there's been lots of comparisons have been made with the, with the Second World War. Um, the 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 difference there was that actually the the life threatening incidents were kind of isolated and predictable. My mother, who's in her eighties, said at least in the war we knew what they what we, we could see 
any potential source of trauma, like a you know a bomber coming overhead, or um, there were these things that you could see, and there were also periods in between where there was actually they were trauma free. Um, in that you could socialise, you could carry on with some of our our usual practised ways of coping. But those have not been available to us in the same extent. We are essentially very social animals. We rely on social contact and that main source of coping and management and mood management has been has been denied us. What we also know from psychological research and clinical practice as well is that how people feel very much depends on how they perceive what's happening to them. So it's really it's not just what has happened to you but it's what you make of what's happened to you. So if somebody feels that it's completely that everything is a threat that you know that that merely being outside their house is a threat to their health that they are hugely vulnerable that people they care about are vulnerable their emotional reaction is going to be very much um different to somebody who might have a more a more of a, a a response that actually um you know to the other extreme as somebody who's a, a complete denier so your emotional response is going to differ. And also how you feel is going to differ over time. We know that when people are faced with anything which is threatening in any way, we have various stages of, of coping with it. We have um, shock and denial. And there are feeling, uh, stages of feeling angry, of feeling irritable, of feeling sad, of feeling guilty, until we finally move to a stage of acceptance. And the typical example of that is when you've lost somebody in a sudden bereavement. So there's that sudden sense of, I don't believe this is happening, this can't be real, um, it's, it's a big mistake, they must have made an error somewhere, to feeling angry, feeling sad, feeling um, guilty, perhaps I could have done something different, um, until the final is a stage of acceptance. So how people feel is going to differ depending on how what their core belief is about their their mastery of the world, if you like, but also where they are in that particular cycle. This kind of sustained stress doesn't just change the way we feel, it changes the way we operate. Emma trained the police and military on how to cope in situations of extreme stress, helping them understand our brains and bodies' reactions and how to make better decisions. So what exactly does happen to your brain under this kind of stress? When you're faced with an acute, an acute stressor, you have lots of things happen in your brain. So your ability to think rationally um, is compromised because of a, reduced, a reduction in blood flow to the prefrontal cortex. Um, we start to rely far more on instinct um, and on previously learned behaviours. Um, and the reason we do that is because when we're under stress, the blood flow in the brain changes um, and you have that reduction in the prefrontal cortex. And you also have an increase um, in the, the midbrain, so the amygdala level. And that is the area that does things like fight or flight. Um, it governs emotional reactions. It governs instincts. Um, so what we find is that when people are exposed to a high level stressor, um, they become less logical um, and more instinctive. The stress response, we tend to think of it as a bad thing. But what's interesting is that there are also positives to it. Um, 
it's designed to make us pay attention to our environment. It's designed to make us um, look outward, to be aware of what's going on around us. Um, there's a fascinating um, aspect of the stress response called the tend and befriend response. It makes us more likely to work together as a group because that is our instinct. When we are under stress, we sort of, we, we band together. You know, I think we saw this a lot in the pandemic of, uh, you know, volunteerism went up, you know, the, people were looking for any way in which they could help others because that comes with the stress response as well. We tend to focus only on the bad side, um, but the stress response can actually bring some fascinating positives that we can use in a situation like ours. This is then an extreme situation and we have all reacted differently. This presents a major challenge for employers. They will need to show some understanding of the impact of all this on workers when thinking about changes to working practices as offices open and new habits are encouraged and formed. They have big decisions to make. How hard to push people to come back to offices? How to measure productivity? How to keep remote workers engaged? And how to nurture and develop the organisation's culture? So how do they start to build a way of working that accommodates the practical changes to working life and takes account of the trauma we have experienced? Anne says that organisations have to adopt an approach that is understanding and flexible and that leaders have a critical role. One of the things that I've been saying to people is it's really important that you validate people's emotions. There's nothing worse if anybody's feeling distressed in any way, whether they're angry, you know, irritable, sad, anxious, whatever they happen to be. There's nothing worse than somebody is declaring that their emotional reaction is invalid. It's absolutely vital in any organisation that your senior people model the model so that they're able to recognise that they've felt irritable, that they've felt anxious, that they've felt down, that they've felt worried about what's going to go on. And it's not something that, it's something that is is broadly acknowledged as being a normal reaction. What we talk about as clinical psychologists in terms of trauma is a normal reaction to an abnormal event. And the last year has not been normal, but how we have felt has been very normal. So I think one of the first things I would say for senior leaders is to actually be acknowledging that it's okay to express emotions that are unpleasant. Um, and it doesn't mean to say that you are that you are losing it, that you are not coping. But they also have to model self-care. So they have to, to be able to say, I think there's a terrible difficulty within legal professions of being in there for great long hours. If you're going to say, actually, we have an expectation that people are going to have, you know, take a time to get back into routine working, they have to also do that themselves. They have to be able to manage their own anxieties, senior management, um, by doing as they're instructing other people to do. I had somebody who I work in an organisation who said to me, I'm really worried, Anne, because I can't get my staff to take time off. And I said, OK, are you taking time off? And he said, no, I'm far too busy. And I thought, well, that's what I mean by modelling the model. You've really got to be leading by example. In more practical terms, Kate Dodd says that a mixed model of home and office working is likely to be the reality for many organisations. I think we're going to see hybrid working. There is a lot of pent-up desire 
to be back in the office. Um, we're seeing occupancy rates going up quite quickly. Um, and I think that with the further easing of lockdowns, that's going to increase. I mean, there is real pent up um, desire and demand in people to, to try and get back to life as normal. Um, but there is also a lot of people who are frightened quite rightly so, um, who are worried about themselves or other people. And, and there are also, of course, the third group of people who have really benefited from lockdown and have really found a new way of working, a new rhythm, um, a new balance in their lives. And, and, and all of these people are going to have to be accommodated. And that's why I think hybrid is definitely the word broadly. Uh, and when you're saying what might it look like in the future, I would say it's going to look like a hybrid situation. It, it will be a, a, a rapidly changing situation. So for example, if we start to see parts of the um, the world or particularly ju particular jurisdictions being overwhelmed by um, a variant, for example, I think that that, you know, that people will react quite quickly in those jurisdictions. So I think GCs need to be open minded. Kate also warns of the dangers for organisations that try to pretend like everything can go back to how it was in 2019, as if nothing has happened. I think there's a real danger of disengagement. Um, so from a cultural perspective, um, we are seeing businesses that aren't getting this right already starting to lose staff. Um, you know, there is, there's been an element of people hanging on um, and battening down the hatches, but already the, you know, the recruiters are talking about a huge upsurge in people starting to look for new roles, um, much more movement than you would expect in a global pandemic. People, I think, who are feeling um, that they haven't been uh, taken seriously or that they're not being listened to are, are moving. Just with people kind of that you interact with on the street saying, uh, you know, they're rushing off going into work the minute that the government announced that there is, you know, easing of restrictions. There's been a kind of a message saying everybody back into work now, regardless of your circumstances. You know, we need you in bums on seats type thing. And of course, that that doesn't that doesn't work for everybody. So of course, what you then do is you start to lose people's, um, you know, the, their goodwill, and that translates into loss of morale. It translates into turnover. It translates into um, all sorts of issues. You know, very kind of business critical issues. The other danger, um, of course, is that people are dispirited by businesses giving up leases already, talking about going into this idea of you'll only be allowed in the office one day a week, you, you know, no desks are going to be available, it's going to be collaboration space only. And we have to recognise that lots of people want to be in the office, particularly um, more junior people, particularly people who are still at earlier stages in their career. But of course, a whole load of people, myself included, who just don't particularly like working from home. So we risk disengaging them. And I've, I've seen and heard already of people who are moving um, away from businesses who've announced this idea of collaboration only office working because actually they just want to be in an office. When it comes to deciding what to do, and when and how to nurture an organisational culture while respecting individuals' experiences and needs, and thinks businesses could learn from some of the approaches taken in a clinical environment. Friends who, who, who work in business who said, it's all very well, it's home working, but actually we're losing the team ethos. We're losing the company ethos. So it's how you get back from isolation working and help somebody who's anxious to get back into the workplace. Now, what you would do in a clinical setting is you would break it down into stages. So if somebody's agoraphobic, you would say, right, let's get to your front door. Let's get to the end of your garden. Let's get to the end of the street. So it might be that what you do, what companies have to do is to actually break that down and saying, for example, um, come in for one day 
And instead of it being a work day, let's get your team members in. Let's get you all at social distance and let's just have a how's your last year been kind of chat. Let's have a cup of tea um, and make something that's a bit less task-centred. A combination of building up people's confidence, reducing their anxiety as well as addressing their anxiety. Because I think what I'm hearing from lots and more organisations is the concern that people are going to simply, you know, produce a whistle, blow it and say, right, that's us back in, guys, back to how we were before. And that is going to be lead to lots and lots of anxiety. An entire society experiencing this sudden and long-lasting trauma is unique in many of our lifetimes. But there are people who choose to live in conditions a bit like this, where they're exposed to fear, anxiety, isolation and loss of control for extended periods. Scientists who spend winters locked in the Antarctic with no access to outside help, those who live on military submarines for months at a time, researchers simulating the isolation of journeys to Mars. These are some of the people who have experienced lockdown-like situations. And Emma says that they've been studied closely to see what the impacts are and that we can learn from that research. There is some really, really interesting research coming out of extreme environments. Um, And what that research shows us is how people cope in a protracted, um, isolated environment. Um, So what we see is that we have the initial stressor, you know, that sort of overwhelming, I don't think I can cope with this moment that I think most of us felt, especially when they said the kids were going to be off school for God knows how long. You see that when people go to the Antarctic, you know, for for wintering over periods. Um, That's a period in which there is no leaving. You know, once you're there, you're there and you are there for six months um, it's a it's an isolated environment. It is an environment you can't control. So we see that we see that sort of sense of being overwhelmed. What's interesting is after that you often get it's called the salutogenic effect, um, and it's almost a feeling of pleasure, you know, sort of 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 accomplishment. And yes, I can do this, and this is incredible. You know, people decided to start making sourdough bread. Um, you know, people took up projects. You know, you, you see a lot of this sort of early stage enthusiasm. Unfortunately, that doesn't last forever. Um, and what you tend to find then in places like the Antarctic is the brain becomes adapted to having less stimulation. Um, Antarctic researchers have termed it psychological hibernation. And I love that term because that when they describe that, they describe what the rest of us call burnout, you know, so it's that sense of very low affect, you know, kind of everything's a bit meh, you know, you just kind of, you're tired, you're heavy, nothing kind of spurs you to action. Um, and we describe that as burnout in a, in a sort of normal situation. Um, but how much nicer is it that in the Antarctic, they're recognising that it's simply your brain adapting to the demands of your situation. We've talked about the scale of the psychological impact on us all and what organisations can do in the weeks and months ahead. But are there things that we can do for ourselves? How do we give ourselves the best chance of thriving? Anne says that one trait that research shows we should all try to nurture is resilience. Resilience is essentially the ability to bounce back 
So it's a bit, you know, you talk about resilience in terms of like a like a sort of um, um, your seatbelt. You know, it's got to have that ability to give and that ability to keep you safe at the same time. But the thing about resilience as well is it's actually born out of out of adversity. When you think of a simple example of a child learning to walk, um, a child learns to walk and falls over continually. If it stood up and walked straight away and then didn't fall down for six years, it would never get up again. So it's that ability to to learn from the mistakes that we made and to learn from adversity. One of the things that I'm very interested in is reflective practice. It's sort of reflecting back on 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 an issue or a, um, an event that has happened and thinking, how did I cope? What did I learn? What could I do differently? So I think being able to create a space and a time for people in teams to simply sit down and reflect and think about how how this went that builds resilience. I'm doing that a lot with organisations that are able to think right, okay, that worked well, that didn't work so well. What could we do differently in the future? And together in in small groups, problem solve. Now that builds organisational resilience. Kate sees reasons for optimism in changing attitudes to mental health at work, while Emma has some tips on thought patterns to avoid and challenges the idea that we're now entering a mental health pandemic. What we have noticed, and I'm sure it's reflected across many different industries and sectors, is much more willingness to talk about mental health. Um, It's been fantastic to have people engaging on this topic who have never engaged before, and that has been a real positive that we can take away from this. We're also seeing people utilise mental health services faster. We are seeing, actually, the, the numbers of people accessing that going up, Um, and actually at an earlier stage. So we're seeing less kind of long-term, more serious um, issues coming to to the fore because people are engaging much earlier. Studies show that rumination, so allowing your brain to run away with, okay, I I have this virus, oh my God, does that mean I'm going to end up in hospital? Am I going to die? You know, I've always been very good at telling myself the horrible stories. Those horrible stories generate a response in your brain as if it's the as if it's the truth, as if it's actually happened. Um, research shows that if you look at what happens in the brain when you're worrying, the parts of the brain that are dedicated to problem solving have nothing to do with it. I, I used to justify my own worry, you know, that I was preparing myself for the future. That's not what I was doing. I was torturing myself. When we perceive ourselves to be under under stress and under threat, we kind of close down. You know, our, our brain closes down. Everything narrows. Our attention narrows. Um, our, our, our memories narrow on to negative experiences in the past. You know, we start doing the, what do I have that I can compare to the current situation? And inevitably, excuse the dog, <laughs> inevitably that's negative. When we focus on the positive, our brain function changes. We bring that prefrontal cortex back in, which is good. That calms down our stress reaction. We look outwards into the world. We become better at problem solving. Um, We become more creative. All of these things have really interesting knock-on effects on how we function. When you approach something with a threat mindset... Our body enters 
a shutdown mode, so it's protecting itself. You know that 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 our digestive process is slow, uh, our brain function changes. What research has shown is that if people instead apply a challenge mindset, it changes how our brains function in that stressful situation. Um, we become more um, alert to the outside world. We we use more of the good stuff of stress. Um, our body readies itself for action. You know, our blood um, is pumped more efficiently. We use our oxygen more efficiently. Um, and so all of that comes from this simple change in mindset. I'm not one of those who thinks that we have a mental health pandemic coming. Um, if you look at the research, what it tells us is most people will respond by bouncing back to where they were before over a course of time. Some people, yes, will suffer from a stress reaction. Others will experience post-traumatic growth. What I think from the employer's point of view is that it is exceptionally important to acknowledge that there are these three different outcomes that we can expect to experience. Um, Not being another source of stress, I think, is really important. Emma mentioned post-traumatic growth there. This is another small reason for hope in the months and years ahead. And it's the idea that damaging experiences can have upsides. We learn, we grow, we develop and strengthen. Not everybody does. And nobody's arguing that it's worth the awful cost. But Emma, then Anne, argue that this much-seen psychological phenomenon should not be discounted. Fascinating research has shown that... People who come from a a point of trauma, people who have been exposed to abuse, um, who have suffered from disasters, there there are improvements that we can see in them after having been exposed to trauma. Children who are exposed to abuse um, often become more empathic. Um, People who have been exposed to threat become more situationally aware you know so my I think my take on it is that for a long time we've looked at stress and trauma as okay you you are irretrievably damaged um you know what can we do to kind of minimize that what I'm saying is yes you are damaged but are there any kind of gems in amongst that damage it's already happened you know there's nothing we can do to take that back So how do we use what's happened to point you on the path to post-traumatic growth? In the wake of adversity, we can actually often challenge some of our previous beliefs, um, change some of our previous beliefs and actually build from it so that it's, it's not that trauma is always something negative. Sometimes it's actually creating something positive. And I think we can see that beginning to happen in this sort of post-pandemic world that's coming out, people are beginning to change their attitudes towards what's valuable to them, that people are seeing that the things that they've really missed have not been the, you know, fancy foreign holidays. It's actually been contact with loved ones. It's been the ability to go to a, a pub or a restaurant. That These are the things that really mattered. But also um, that, that they're recognising that we have been able, they've managed something that's been very difficult to manage and probably sometimes have been better able to cope than they've, than they've thought they would be able to. Thanks. 
thank you for joining us for the latest Brain Food for General Council podcast. Remember, you can keep up to date with hour-by-hour coverage of business law news by the Outlaw Reporting team at pinsentmasons.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this or past programmes, please do rate and review them. It helps us to reach other people who might also be interested. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Counsel was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Pinsent Masons, the purpose-led international professional services firm with law at its core.